Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candice Keener, joined by fellow editor Katie Lambert. Hello, Candice. Hello, Katie. I am so excited to do the first of what may be many installments of Fan Picks, colon, Three Greatest Innovators in History. And why three, you may ask? Um, it's because, one, Katie and I are both so crazy about, we had to share him. And then she had strong feelings about another, and I, another. So without any further ado, um, I did want to mention some of the other fabulous names that the blog readers tossed out. And even though we can't cover all of the innovators you suggested, we picked three who we thought made huge impacts on society, culture, science, health, the printed word, hint, hint. We got a great suggestion from Ben about Nikola Tesla, who I really wanted to do just so I could talk about um, the earthquake machine and the death ray that Ben mentioned. And another big vote for Jesus from Steve, which I thought would have been a really interesting way to take this. Candace, who spells her name with an I, not an A, uh, well, that's probably why she suggested Alexander Hamilton, one of Thomas Jefferson's greatest enemies. And she wrote a whole list of things he accomplished, including writing the Federalist Papers, founding the Bank of New York, serving as the first Secretary of the Treasury, founding the U.S. Mint and the Coast Guard, and she goes on and on. But did he have an earthquake machine? No. Well. No, he did not. He was pretty good looking, though, as far as historical personages go. I will give him that. Um, and then Aaron suggested a woman named Ada Lovelace, who is credited, she says, with being the first computer programmer and for inventing the first computer programming language, all from 1815 to 1852. Pretty wild, huh? And we so did want a woman on this list. So let's get into it. The three inventors we picked are... Johann Gutenberg... Leonardo da Vinci, and Benjamin Franklin. And we will start off with Johann Gutenberg, who you might know as the inventor of the printing press. And because of Gutenberg, you have all those lovely mass market paperbacks in your bookshelves. He was born in the 14th century to a wealthy German family. And even though we know him for his contributions to the printing world, he began as a goldsmith and then dabbled as a gem cutter. And you were telling me he did something else interesting, too. He dabbled in glasses making as well in his time in Strasbourg, France. Wow. He did a little bit of everything, a Renaissance man before the Renaissance, shall we say. And he was, above all things, a businessman and an entrepreneur, because what he did was not so brilliant in creating a printing press. It was taking three existing innovations, paper, ink, and movable type, and combining them into the Gutenberg press. But he did not come up with the idea of movable type on his own. That actually originated back in China. Around 600 AD, the Chinese began using engraved wooden blocks to print in a process called xylography. And today that's still an art using wooden carvings to create some sort of print on paper. And then around 1041 to 1048, one man came up with movable type, arranging the wooden blocks on a tray, heating it, and then pressing it on paper to transfer the ink. And then in 13th century Korea, metal typesetting was created with up to 100,000 pieces of type in about 10 different fonts. But the problem with movable type in China and Korea was that there were so many characters it didn't take off. 
So the art languished for a bit, I guess you could say, until the ideas of paper and ink eventually made it over to Europe through different trade routes and different conquests. And Gurton realized that he had his hands on the perfect alphabet to create a good typesetting system. So he used this new type of ink that he created. It was an alloy uh, made of lead and tin and another ingredient that wouldn't shrink after it was cooled. And it's actually still used today. So combining this ink with paper, originally using vellum, and then the type of press that was used to squeeze grapes and olives for wine and olive oil, he was able to make actual printed materials. And the nice thing about that metal movable type was that not only was it faster to use, those letters made a much sharper impression and therefore more durable and more uniform, actually, than the woodblock printing was because you could make each letter look exactly the same. So all of your A's on a page would look like all of the other A's. And Gutenberg also printed on front and back of the pages eventually leading to the very famous 42-line Gutenberg Bible. People today still talk about the pleasant layout design of this Bible. 42 lines arranged in columns, plenty of space on either side of the page. 200 copies he printed of this book. It came in two volumes for a total of 1,282 pages, and it was printed in 1455. And Consulting a couple different sources, I was a little bit unsure as to whether Gutenberg himself printed the Bible or whether by this time he lost management of his printing press to the man who would put up the capital for him when he started his business. So if you have any knowledge about that, maybe you can fill us in. But regardless, the Bible came out. It was extremely popular. The rate of literate people in Europe at this time was on on the rise. So it was very good for disseminating reading materials. Well, and no one, not that many people could afford to buy an illuminated manuscript. They were very, very expensive. You're talking monks putting together these books for years. Yeah, handwritten copies. So to expedite the process was huge. And it led to other developments, too, not only in in the ways of the Reformation, Renaissance, and scientific revelation, but even to the advent of book fairs. The Frankfurt Book Fair was huge. People came to get copies of reading materials. I love book fairs, personally. I wish they'd come back in vogue. (laughs) But by 1500, after my little digression there, a half a million books had been printed. And the Gutenberg Revolution author, John Mann, says that a third of all books in Germany printed between 1518 to 1528 were works by Martin Luther, essentially launching the Reformation. So you could say that the Gutenberg press was as simplistic as putting the printed word on a page, but other history scholars would beg to differ, saying that it put the world on its end and launched a huge religious reformation. And as a little aside, if you are more interested in the printing aspects of Gutenberg's developments and contributions as opposed to his, uh, shall we say, cultural, religious, and social contributions, there were two Europeans who followed who made additional efforts to help perfect the printing method. And these are sort of whimsical, but I like them, so I'll tell you anyway. There was Nicholas Jensen from France who created serifs, which are those little tail flourishes at the end of words and letters that you see. It's an optical illusion that keeps your eye traveling across the page to keep reading. Then from Italy, we have a man named Aldous Minutius who created italics, italics, Italy, catch the drift. And this was designed to maximize the number of words on the page because they were all slanted. So you see, thank you, Gutenberg, for reformations and serifs, really. (laughs) You put it all in motion. And the printing press actually brings us into our next innovator, 
da Vinci because he came up with his own innovations on Gutenberg's printing press that would have made it much easier to print. If his designs had been used, one person would have been able to print instead of an entire crew of people. But, of course, being da Vinci and being rather secretive with his notebooks, no one actually saw those designs. You might have heard of da Vinci. Um, he was the quintessential <laughs> Renaissance man. He painted a little painting called the Mona Lisa and also the Last Supper and the Virgin of the Rocks. But painting wasn't all he was about. He was very much interested in science and in inventing things. And some of his inventions, and I'm using Jane McGrath's research for this one, were an ornithopter, which is a flying machine with wings that the pilot could operate. Um, but he didn't quite manage to pull that one off. He underestimated the importance of feathers to a bird, and his ornithopter <laughs> never would actually have flown. He also designed a diving apparatus, which is like a primitive version of a scuba suit or a diving bell, actually, as well as a parachute and the idea of a telescope. Um, he proposed that lenses and mirrors would enable us to get closer to the nature of the planets. And some of da Vinci's most interesting innovations were made ever more understandable and comprehensible to me by virtue of Katie being our resident health editor. And I am very much excited about the other thing that da Vinci was excited about. And which, I'm thrilled, can I interject, because Katie is about to come across as more morbid than I've ever sounded. So have at it, Katie. <laughs> I will take your morbid crown. Um, da Vinci and autopsy, actually. He was very into empirical observation. His teacher, Verrocchio, had told him it was important to sketch from life. So he would take his notebook places and sketch people and things exactly as they were. And part of learning to sketch the human form was to see, actually, how human bodies work. So he would go to these operating theaters, which is how medical students used to learn back then, and it would be a bunch of med students standing around this corpse while a man cut it apart. And a different man, who wasn't even looking at the body, would be just talking from a book, this ancient wisdom about the human body and things that weren't even necessarily true. Could be a complete misunderstanding of how blood circulates in the body. And even though what the students were looking at didn't even remotely match what the text was saying, they always deferred to the text rather than to their own senses. What a great way to propagate knowledge in advance the <laughs> field of medicine. It really was not. But because of that, da Vinci sort of took matters into his own hands and got really interested in dissection. He injected a human brain with hot wax so he could look at the ventricles and took the skull apart and sketched it from different angles. He boiled cow's eyeballs and egg yolks <laughs> so he could section them and see exactly how the inside of them worked. But what he really understood was the female form, right? Oh, yes. In case you didn't know, um, supposedly when you're pregnant... Suppressed menstrual blood turns into breast milk. For Thanks, a baby. Da Vinci. <laughs> Helpful. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and have to tell you that that's not true. I'm sorry if that makes anyone sad. But what he did figure out was how the optic nerve works, which no one up to that time knew, and also how kidney stones are formed. So even though I may be joking a little bit about some of his innovations that turned out to be wrong, he was making suppositions and putting forth research that no one really had. Like you were saying, people were relying on ancient, well, not ancient, that's not fair. People were relying on old and outmoded texts to influence the way they practiced medicine. But da Vinci's innovations changed all of that. Well, and the thing I loved were the, the questions he had that no one really had been asking. There are notes in his notebooks of 
you know, how does a fetus breathe? What do testicles do? Like, why do we have this? And he had such a curious, inventive mind. Another curious inventor was Benjamin Franklin. And the curious case of Benjamin Franklin was that he was born a British colonist in Boston in 1706, and he died an American in Philadelphia, 1790. So he lived for a really long time, especially for that time frame. And I found on PBS... Uh, they did a special about Benjamin Franklin, and they had a, a web page about Ben, A to Z. And from A to Z, they wrote out all the different things he was. Seriously, a couple of attributes for each letter. And I wanted to share four of my favorite letters. B, balloon enthusiast, comma, bifocals inventor. F, founding father, flirt, firefighter. O, organizer, parentheses, militia, fire department, street cleaning, close parentheses odometer maker, and then V, volunteer, visionary, vegetarian, temporarily. I just, I love that. He really was so many things. And maybe he's belittled a little bit for some silly things that we think might have been gaffes or uh, mistakes on his behalf, like wanting to propose the turkey as the national bird of the United States. But this is what he had to say about the American eagle, and it really gives us a glimpse into the way that his mind worked and into his type of character. He said, For my own part, I wish the eagle had not been chosen the representative of our country. He is a bird of bad moral character. He does not get his living honestly. And he goes on to explain that the eagle pretty much sits on a high perch, watches all the others do the work, and then goes and takes their prey. So he was very much a man who was fond of earning your living. And he started out in a printing shop. He'd wanted to be a sailor, but his father said, no, you can't. You have to work in a printing shop. And so he did. And from there, he made a big impact on media with the Philadelphia Gazette, Poor Richard's Almanac. He was a scientist developing the single fluid theory of electricity. He drew the first political cartoon. He was a postmaster, a philosopher, a diplomat, a musician, created the bifocals. I could go on and on and on, but I'll stop and tell you some of the more interesting tidbits about his innovations and contributions to society. He actually created an instrument called the glass harmonica, and it looks like a pianoforte with um, glass tumblers, a series of glass tumblers inside. And the glass spins, and you dampen your fingers, and then you play them, like the scene in Miss Congeniality yeah. with Sandra Bullock playing the glasses. So it was an actual instrument that he put together. The only time that Sandra Bullock and Benjamin Franklin have ever been in the same sentence. And you didn't think we could do it. This is what we girls are capable of. In 1743, he founded the American Philosophical Society, and the purpose of this, to quote Franklin, was to promote useful knowledge in the colonies. And it's still around today, still essentially serving the same purpose. It's engaging people from different professions in dialogue to disseminate knowledge and understanding. And the original members were a physician, mathematician, geographer, philosopher, botanist, chemist, and an engineer. And it was very similar to the idea of a salon. You get intelligent people together to discuss these things and to better society, essentially. And in addition to his, I guess, intellectual knowledge and contributions. One of his physical contributions was forming a firefighting club. This was a group of men in Philadelphia who got together in 1736 to incorporate the Union Fire Company, and they were all required to have buckets to help put out flames and bags to remove valuables from homes because fires were incredibly common with all the wooden structures around and all the fireplaces that abounded. 
And it was members protecting members, essentially. So if you weren't a member, you were kind of out of luck. But from here, he had the idea to create mutual insurance, people paying in for protection. And if any member of society lost his home to fire, if he had this mutual insurance, the group would give the money to him to recoup him for his losses. So pretty ingenious. And to talk about his political side a little bit, He's known for starting the Great Compromise during the drafting of the Constitution. Originally, he didn't really go along with this idea. He wanted a unicameral legislation. But eventually, he said, we'll solve the problem of representation by having a house made up of representatives that are determined by a state's population, and then senators, of which will have the same number from every state. And there was a moment when people thought the Constitution wouldn't get signed because people were still pretty upset about some differences among them. He made a very, very passionate speech and implored everyone to sign. And almost everyone did, but not everyone. So he died with this legacy of being the ultimate American citizen. He really was everything to all subject areas. And inventions as simple as bifocals on the lightning rod, the Franklin stove, things like this that still impact our society today. Speaking of things we still use today, Franklin invented the flexible urine catheter, while although it doesn't sound all that exciting, has extremely practical uses. And if you've ever been in the hospital and needed one, I'm sure you'll grateful. But that just goes to show that the greatest innovations run the gamut from small practical things to grandiose ideologies. And we're so thankful for all the innovators in history who have made our world what it is today. And if you've been listening and you've gotten an idea for another innovator who was not proposed on the first go round of comments, if you want to, you can, you can still post a comment a couple days later. Um, on that particular blog entry, or you can wait until we do a little podcast roundup about this topic and another one when you visit our blogs or email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And for more information about Benjamin Franklin, lots of Da Vinci, and some good old Gutenberg printing, be sure to visit the website at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 